0: diet black podcast is a podcast about true crime punk rock and gothic music tv shows and movies pretty much anything creepy or weird that we decide to discuss it may contain graphic content vulgar language and suggestive themes that may be triggering and or inappropriate for some listeners let's be honest it's gonna contain vulgar language Now, all opinions are just that, they're opinions. We are not scholars, lawyers, or historians, and by no means do we claim to be experts. And the information that we obtain comes from the internet, and we have no proof that it's fact. So thank you, and enjoy the show. two and
1: everyone in between
0: yes so we did the first episode we've had some drinks we just did a fucking shot because well we're in quarantine and we're bored as fuck
1: and we've dedicated these shots to the memory of both michael hutchins and ian curtis yes. who we are going to talk about also yes
0: Also. Oh. so <laughs> so in between episodes we've kind of been Dealing with the family stuff and petting our little boy who's planted in a bar stool in between us.
1: He hasn't moved, ladies and gentlemen. He has pretty much been snoring the entire time. He has become a very lazy bum.
0: Yeah, I mean he slept like all day today. But, you know, he was a very rambunctious kitten. And as he gets older, he is rambunctious but and curious, but he's smart And he's also been a giant sweetheart.
1: And see, I've been calling him a jerk since we got him. I was the one who was like, yeah, he's pretty, but I'm not going to let it get to his head. I'm going to keep him humble. Then he started doing something that melted me completely and i have become one of the sheep who loves this boy dearly yeah. and so i can't even be mad at him
0: anymore so tam's cat that we still have left is gigi and gigi is basically an extension of tam but she's G-
1: my familiar she's my spirit animal yeah. she is part of me
0: she's a sweet old girl but she's about 13 14 years old and mm-hmm. she's got some hip and joint problems, and there's a lot of places where normally she's super clean, but it probably hurts her to do stuff. Yeah, she and can't
1: bend as good as she used to. I understand. I, I yeah, feel it like some. and she's
0: is. have been having some ear issues, which the vet, you know, noticed spot on. But like a good little sweet boy, he's been cuddling her, and while he cuddles her, he cleans her ears. And he cleans her back, which she can't reach, and it's just absolutely yeah, beautiful. Yeah, he's grooming
1: my girl, and I can't even like. It just
0: like Stevie doesn't do that. Stevie's like, "Fuck off." Yeah. But he's like, "I love you. I will take care of you. Let let me embrace you and take <laughs> care of you."
1: And I'm like, "God damn it! All right, you're a sweetheart." And. You have won your place in my affections, and I love him now.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is what I wanted more a boycat I ever did. because a lot of people don't realize, like yes, boycats spray and it's obnoxious, but we he was fixed when we adopted him. He hasn't sprayed anything. He's just been He's super clean. Yeah oh God, he yeah.
1: The one who never misses the litter box. He buries other people's business in yeah, the Yeah, including box. Stevie's,
0: because Stevie, look, I love Stevie, <laughs> but she does not know how to bury own shit. Like, she'll take a dump, she'll scrape the wall, she'll scrape the side of the litter box, she pulls plastic bags into the litter box. She'll
1: do everything, but she doesn't know how to scrape the actual litter.
0: Yeah, she's like, did I do it right? And I'm <laughs> no, like, no, no honey, honey. <laughs> no, please, I just, I can't. But she's an amazing cat in her own right.
1: She is. And I love her and I will never speak ill of her. No. But I will make fun of her. Especially because one of the litter boxes is directly across from our toilet. And we have often had times where we're taking care of our business together. (laughs) And making really awkward eye contact. That
0: one really needs to be cleaned by the I
1: know. So,
0: So we've got our beautiful sweet boy who takes care of our beautiful elderly gal. And I love her. Like last night... So we got stupid drunk, and we ordered food and didn't think about it. We ordered really spicy food, and I cannot... One, I can't sleep if there's food in my stomach, and two...
1: We got Korean food, and it's amazingly tasty, but oh my god, it just burned so bad. Yeah,
0: so we we ordered um, yizo, but some of it was really good. It was like a soy ginger. Fantastic. We also ordered one which was a special sauce to the place that we ordered it from. And it was so spicy, I was choking.
1: I thought they were going to be on the side. I had no idea that they were going to just, like, soak it in red-hot fire. So, (laughs) we were in for some pain. Yeah, so
0: I fell asleep in my um, recliner. And Gigi fell asleep with me, which was super sweet.
1: So... Basically, Liam is taking over the old man um, duties in this house, so every man who, who's had this recliner has been just sat in this recliner and lived their life from this recliner. Which and he I is, do. He is now the third man in this family. So my uncle Larry, God bless him, great guy, he died in that recliner. <laughs>
0: That's how comfortable this fucking <laughs> chair is.
1: It's the Uncle Larry chair.
0: Yeah, I don't mean I don't even think about it. Like I'll, no, I'll like we're watching uh, Dead Files, and I just passed out with Gigi. So she originally was like on my chest, below my chin, and by the time I fell asleep, she was so tucked under my chin I couldn't even drink anything. But I passed out, and she was there for me. She's like, "I got you."
1: We have nicknamed Gigi Ambien and or Roofies.
0: Yeah. Because
1: if she sits on you, you're going to sleep.
0: Oh, no. There's no other way. There's no choice. Like, you're stuck in spot, and this cat is going to put you fucking out. Like, my brain could be in, like, 20 different places, but once this cat curls up on my chest, that's it. I'm done.
1: It's the most comforting feeling in the world. And... I love her and again sorry I forget to You're turn my phone Fucking phone. Fog. All right.
0: So, we're on to episode six. 6 of season 2 and this one is about the short-lived but ever infamous Ian Curtis.
1: Who yeah, may have had a very short life but has left a legacy Mm -hmm. that is still so important to this
0: day. Yeah, so I've watched some documentaries on him, but a majority of the stuff, I'm going to tell you, it's all hearsay from, like, Wikipedia. I had to fact-check a couple things, had to change stuff, so I apologize if it's not 100% spot on.
1: It's all, you know, with everybody who's lived and died and had a rock and roll lifestyle, there's always going to be stories. And I, I came across that in mine, too. Like... There's no 100% truth because everybody's got their own version of it. And because he was so in the spotlight, people exaggerated, people took things and twisted it, and we'll never know 100% what actually happened. We're doing our best to take our research and put it together in a coherent manner, but we do understand that we may never know the full story.
0: Yeah, and... I mean, I had to fact check a couple of things just to make sure it's spot on to some of the documentaries like we're like Peter Hook's like, this is how it happened. what I got was something completely different. So I had to modify it to be spot on to the people who knew him personally to make sure that it was as accurate as I could get it. So, I apologize if anything might not be spot-on, and there's also, um... And
1: drink every time he says spot-on.
0: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) spot-on. Yes. So, I know that there's a movie, and there are some things that were included in the movie that I chose to not include in his story. Really good movie, by the way. It's called Control. Yeah.
1: If you get a chance to see it, I highly recommend it. It's well done, and mostly respectful, Um, he's running in his sleep right now.
0: Yeah, he's switching. (laughs) He's chasing squirrels.
1: Bubba, get him.
0: Alright, so we're gonna get into the story.
1: Yes, I shall let you do your thing, sir.
0: And she screamed out, kicking on her side, and said, I've lost control again. And seized up on the floor. I thought she died. She said, I've lost control. Ian Curtis was born on July 15, 1956, to Kevin and Doreen Curtis. He grew up in a working-class household in Macclesfield, Cheshire, with his parents and sibling. They say that even from an early age, he was intelligent and enjoyed books, with a special love of poetry. At the age of 11, he was awarded a scholarship at Macclesfield's Independent King's School. It was there that he developed his interest in philosophy, philosophy, sorry, literature, and poetry. The year after he graduated from King's School, his family purchased a house from a relative and moved to New Mostyn. Now, as a teenager, Ian and his friends would do their community service by visiting the elderly, which at first seems very sweet. Till you realize that they were doing it to steal drugs from the elderly. Ha! And then they'd get together to party! Whoop, whoop! What? Well, <laughs> we all, we know that at some point, this was going to come back and bite him in the ass. <laughs> and it did. When he was 16, he and his buddy stole some, uh, lag... Largacetol. And so, Largacetol is an antipsychotic and it is used to treat severe depression and behavioral disturbances. Well, one day, he took a large dose of it, and next thing you know, his father found him unconscious in his bedroom and he had to have his stomach bumped. Oops. So, yeah, so, oopsie, this is the beginning of some shit. Yeah. Now, um, Ian, of course, he loved music. Early on, especially Jim Morrison and David Bowie. Those were his heroes.
1: Very evident.
0: Yeah, Now their work influenced his poetry. And being poor, however, he couldn't afford to buy records. And instead, he'd steal them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, that was England at the time.
0: Yeah, no, he eventually left school to find work and... While he was doing that, he did continue, uh, continue to pursue art, literature, and music. Now, on August twenty third, nineteen seventy five, he married uh, Deborah Woodruff when Ian was only nineteen. And then on April nineteenth, nineteen seventy nine, they had their only child, Natalie. Now, in the beginning, the couple lived with Ian's grandparents, but soon they moved to Chatterton where they paid a mortgage while working in jobs which neither one of them enjoyed. But before long, the couple became disillusioned with the life in Oldham, and they remortgaged their house. Um, then they briefly went back t- to living with Ian's grandparents till they moved into their own house on Barton Street in Macclesfield, And in this house, they actually had a room. That they dubbed as the songwriting room, where Ewan would go retreat and, you know, create music.
1: That's cool. At least he had his own private space for a while.
0: Now, while attending a Sex Pistols gig in 1976, Bernard uh, Sumner, Peter Hook, and Terry Mason decided that they wanted to form a band. So, they They had some cover. They wanted to form a band. So they saw the Buzzcocks perform, oh. and they talked to the infamous... Pete Shelley. Pete Shelley, and he would, they were on board. They are like, yeah, cool, we'll support you guys. So what they did is they put an uh, advertisement in a uh, music magazine for a drummer and a singer, and Ian was the first person to respond. So he calls has a conversation with them. And he's like, are you the guy from the two Ians? And he's like, yeah. So they have this conversation, and by the end of the phone call, In was part of the band. That was it. Yeah. It was done. It was signed, sealed, fucking done. Now, initially, the band named themselves Warsaw from the title of a song of David Bowie's then-recent album, Low. But after realizing that they might be confused with the London-based band Warsaw Pact, They renamed themselves Joy Division, which...
1: I was going to say, do you have the actual, like, definition of Joy Division in there?
0: Yeah. Which was revived from the 1955 novel The House of the Dolls that featured a Nazi concentration camp with a sexual slavery wing called the Joy Division.
1: Yeah, it was basically Nazi-run brothels of Jewish women where they'd go to get their rocks off.
0: Fucking disgusting. Now, the cover of the band's first EP actually depicted a drawing of a Hitler youth beating a drum, and the A-side contained the song Warsaw, which was a musical retelling of the life of Nazi leader Rudolf Hess. I mean... kind of shitty.
1: I mean, at the time, it was considered subversive because they had just gotten out of the war. Now... I do not ever condone Nazi idealism, but at the time, especially for the British who had just gotten their asses kicked by the Nazis but finally came through it, it was their way of rebelling. And I get that. They went through that phase. Bowie went through that phase. Then White Duke. Um, But, you know, I don't think they ever actually
0: took the, like... Not to the extent of, like, Slayer.
1: Yeah, like, they never took the Aryan ideals as their own. It was more just a fascination with what had happened.
0: So, after founding Factory Records with Alan... Erasmus? (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) forgive me. Tony Wilson signed the band to his label following their first appearance on the TV show that he hosted, So It Goes... In September of 1978, Joy Division played the song Shadow Play on that performance. Awesome song. Yeah. Now, while performing with Joy Division, Ian became known for his quiet and awkward demeanor and his unique dancing style, often reminiscent of the epileptic seizures that he began to experience in late of 1978. He was officially diagnosed with the condition in January the following year. Now Ian's case was described by doctors as so severe that he would not be able to function without the various strong dosage of medications that they prescribed to him. It was initially open to discuss his he was initially open to discuss his condition with anyone who asked, but he soon became withdrawn and reluctant to discuss any issues regarding his condition beyond the most mundane and necessary. So it's like you could talk about like some of your issues, but at some point you're like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't fucking do this anymore." Now, throughout 1979 and 1980, his condition gradually worsened amid the pressure of performances and touring, and his seizures became more frequent and more intense. And then, following his diagnosis, he continued to drink, smoke, and maintain a regular sleep habits. <laughs> Which is not recommended for someone who's suffering from their condition. Now, the medications he was prescribed for it um, produced numerous side effects, including extreme mood swings. And this caused him to be extremely quiet and untalkative, especially around his wife. So there's reports of like family members going, Yeah, he was a total dick. He just didn't talk to her. Um. Just as a
1: side note, If you want to see information about them being signed to Factory Records and the whole Manchester scene and all of that, I recommend the movie 24-Hour Party People, which is the story of Factory Records and the whole Manchester scene. And again, it's a fun, crazy ride. So if you're into that kind of music, as I am, and I do own that movie still on DVD, I recommend it. I turned you down! <laughs> no. <laughs> sorry.
0: No, 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 it's fine. Um, so, now the real sad part, though, was because of his condition, he was actually rarely able to hold his daughter in fear for her own safety.
1: Oh, now see, that's rough. There's so much these guys have in common.
0: Yeah. So it's like all he wanted was to hold his daughter, but he was so afraid that he would have a seizure and, like, drop her and hurt her. He just wouldn't do it. Now, as time went on, his friend, um, Lindsay Reed, uh, she said before his death that he saw to it, he saw that, like, Joy Division was going to go on without him, and he felt very removed from it. With the epilepsy, he just knew he couldn't carry on with performances, and he sort of hit a pinnacle with Closer, and he knew he just couldn't go on. Oh man, it's just heartbreaking! It is now, although he was predominantly a singer, um, he also played guitar on a handful of the tracks. Uh, usually when Sumner was playing synthesizer, some of these include uh, Incubation, and there was a, a peel session version of Transmission where both Sumner and Curtis played guitar, that's cool. which is kind of cool. Now, at the time of the recording of the band's second album, Curtis's condition was particularly severe, with him enduring a weekly average of two tonic-clonic seizures. Now, these are especially scary, as the tonic phase phase causes the muscles to become stiff, and then the person often passes out. And the clonic phase causes the person to have convulsions that can last anywhere from a few seconds to three minutes. Now, on one occasion during a recording, uh, his bandmates became concerned when they noted that he had been absent from the recording studio for two hours. Um, Their bassist, Peter Hook, the infamous Peter Hook, (laughs) discovered that he was unconscious on the floor of the studio's bathroom, having hit his head on the sink following a seizure. Now, despite instances such as this one, um, Peter Hook said that largely through ignorance of the condition, he, Sumner, and Morris did not know how to help him. But nonetheless, he was also adamant that Ian never wanted to upset or concern his bandmates and would, quote unquote, tell them what they wanted to hear if they expressed any concern about his condition. So he's like, all right, mates, it's fine, I'm fine. Let's let's do Ian's this. Ian's fine. Ian's fine. <laughs> Ian's fine. Ian's fine. Yeah, so but there's an example of one time there was a concert that was held in front of about three thousand people at the Rainbow in Finsbury Park in April of nineteen eighty. Now the light the lighting technicians at the venue they switched on the strobe lights oh, shit. <laughs> about midway through their performance and even though they were instructed not to turn them on, they did this. And it caused Ian to almost immediately stagger backwards, collapse against the drum kit, and just full on seizure oh. from the strobe lights. Then he had to be carried off stage to the band's dressing room to recuperate. Now, when he recovered from the seizures, he was adamant that the band had to tra- travel to. West Hampstead, to honor their commitment to perform their second gig that night. So they had two gigs set up. So he has a massive seizure at the first one. He's like, no, no, I'm okay. I can do this. I got this. So they travel, but unfortunately about 25 minutes into the second gig, his dancing, quote-unquote, started to lose its rhythmic sense and changed into something else entirely. He collapsed to the floor and experienced the most violent seizure he had endured to date. I mean, I know people who have epilepsy and it is the most frightening, disturbing thing that you can see someone go through, especially someone that you love and adore. And you're like, holy shit, what the fuck do I do?
1: Yeah.
0: And it's just, it's heartbreaking. So I'm like reading this, I'm like, oh my God, I've seen this. It breaks my heart. However, his onstage dancing ended up often being reminiscent of his seizures. Um, It ended up being termed by some as his epilepsy dance.
1: I mean, it's really herky-jerky. Yeah, if you've no, have seen, seen it. If you've ever seen, yeah, like, stage footage of him, he's very much, like, just very, like, loose and awkwardly
0: jerking jerking
1: yeah I mean he really did like incorporate it
0: which I mean it kind of makes sense if you're an artist you're gonna like harness your weakness yeah now throughout their live performances in 1979 and 1980 he actually collapsed several times while performing and had to be carried off stage now to minimize any possibility of him having seizures flashing lights were prohibited at Joy Division shows it's also said uh, that certain percussion effects would also cause him to have a seizure. So even though they had the, like, the strobe lights and the flashing lights turned off, certain drum beats would just set him off. And in April 1980, Terry Mason was appointed to ensure that Ian took his prescribed medications, avoided alcohol cons- consumption, and got enough sleep. I don't think that worked out very well.
1: I mean, how would you like to be the guy in the band who's got to babysit your singer? I mean, that sucks.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, his fav- uh, final live performance with Joy's Division was on May 2nd, 1980. It was held at the High Hall of Birmingham University included Joy Division's first and only performance of Ceremony, which was later recorded by New Order and released as their debut single. And the final song that Ian ever performed on stage with Joy Division was digital. Mm. Now, following Curtis's first suicide attempt in April of 1980, Tony Wilson and his partner Lindsay invited Ian to recuperate at their cottage in Charleston. Now, by early 1980s, Ian's marriage to Deborah was floundering she filed for divorce because he would not stop keeping contact with a woman who he had supposedly been having an affair with. Now, he enjoyed solitude, but he had never been mentally equipped to living alone. He was having difficulty balancing his family obligations and his musical ambitions, and his health was gradually worsening as the result of his epilepsy. And unfortunately, that meant that he became increasingly dependent upon others. Now, on the evening before his death, he informed Bernard Sumner of his insistence upon seeing his wife that evening. He had also made firm plans to rendezvous with his bandmates in Manchester Airport the following day before their debut tour in America.
1: Yeah, they were supposed to fly out the next day.
0: Yeah. Now, on the night of May 17th, 1980, he actually called uh Deborah and he wanted her to drop by... He wanted her to drop her impending divorce proceedings, but she told him that he was likely would change his mind by the following day. And then, she was mindful of his previous suicide attempt and also concerned with his state of anxiety and frustration. That she was worried it would cause a seizure, so she offered to spend the night with him. Now she then drove to her parents' home to tell them what she was doing, and by the time then returned to his house. Now, when she arrived, his demeanor had changed, and he told her he wanted to spend the night alone. But he also made her promise not to come back to the house till after he had met up with his bandmates in Manchester. So he was supposed to meet, take a 10 a.m. train to mm-hmm. Manchester to meet up with them. He's like, don't come back till after that. Okay. So he made her promise that, which it sounds kind of fishy. I'm just saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, if you need some alone time, you're going to find it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're going to do what you're going to do. Yeah. Now, the next day, Deborah returned to the house and discovered that Ian Curtis hung himself in his kitchen. He was 23 years old. He left behind a note to Deborah declaring his love for her despite his recent affair. It was later discovered that he had taken photographs of their wedding and their baby daughter off the walls, supposedly to look at them while he wrote the note. This is some heart-wrenching shit.
1: It really is. And, okay, being the music nerd that I am, I've read a fair amount about this. And again, as, as I said, I've seen several movies and documentaries, but... There were rumors for a long time that there was photographic or video... Not video, because I guess video wasn't really a thing so much then, but somehow film of him taking his own life. And that there were rumors that he had hung himself, but had decided halfway through that he didn't want to go through with it. And there was actual footage of him stumbling around the kitchen trying to save himself after the act now there's no proof of this nobody's ever found any proof of this and what happened happened so i cannot tell you that that is fact but i can tell you that that's the sort of crazy shit that people start talking about when these sort of things happen
0: Well, yeah. I mean, any time that someone meets a very early tragic end...
1: And people can't handle the truth. I mean, as you saw in my story, people were willing to accept way crazy ideas instead of the fact that somebody was just done with their lives. Yeah. So I don't believe that Ian had any footage of anything. And I don't believe that there is necessarily any proof that he tried to stop or he hesitated in his endeavor. But, you know, it, people people are going to talk.
0: Yeah, I mean, the more you hear about it, the more you can kind of really understand if he did do it, why he did it. You know, so at the time of his death, Joy Division, they were on the eve of their debut North American tour. And according to his wife... He had viewed this upcoming tour with extreme trepidation. Not only because of his extreme fear of flying, but because he was worried at how the American audiences would react to his epilepsy. He had already been received tons of... He was just mocked constantly because of it. From bands and audiences like across the UK. And he felt that it would only increase when they went on tour. They're like, yeah, this guy's cool, but he's a fucking weirdo. Like, I can see where he probably got that.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, audiences at that time, we've talked about it in Australia. It was also very evident in the UK that people were not very nice about rock stars, especially the weird ones. And.
0: Yeah, because you see this guy up on stage, he's like, she's lost control again. He's like jerking around.
1: And, like, God
0: forbid, like, a strobe light comes on and he fucking passes out, and you're like...
1: What the fuck just happened?
0: Yeah, I'm like, I paid money for this. What happened? So, you could kind of... There was definitely a lack
1: of compassion, and definitely a lack of understanding at the time of what was happening. You know, people didn't know he had epilepsy. They just thought he had... Drank too much or took too many drugs or... Yeah, I mean... At, whatever. At
0: that time, it's like epilepsy was... Epilepsy was, like, really... At it the was new science. Yeah, it was at the beginning of the stage. You're like, why is this guy doing this? What is going on? Is he trying to get attention? And I'm like, no, he legitimately had a...
1: Medical condition.
0: Yeah. Now, according to Lindsay Reed, the wife of the manager of Factory Records... He told her shortly before his death that he believed that he could no longer perform live with the band because of his epilepsy. She also said that he felt with the release of Closer, which was their last album, that the band had reached their artistic pinnacle. And Tony Wilson later said that it was likely that Ian saw his act of suicide as not just ending his own suffering but as an unselfish act to the band themselves.
1: I mean, that's definitely the kind of thing that goes through someone's head in a situation like that, is if I'm not in the picture, they don't have to worry about me anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, that kind of is a very suicidal mentality.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And then, but... So there's a quote from Bernard Sumner... When he was reflecting in 2015 on some of his lyrics, uh, Ian's lyrics, that he wrote for Joy Division's second and final album, Closer, where he says, Strange as it may sound, it wasn't until after his death that we really listened to his lyrics and clearly heard the inner turmoil in them.
1: I mean, their biggest song is Love Will Tear Us Apart.
0: I mean... It's like, I was, like, watching some documentaries on the whole thing, and they're like, punk was great, because punk was, like, hardcore, fuck you, fuck the system, fuck you, fuck you, and Joy Division was one of the first bands to come in and say, we're fucked.
1: Yeah, that post-punk, like, we're not yelling at everybody else, we know what we have done to ourselves, and what our situation is, and it sucks, and it's not about what other people have done to us, and... The society that we're living in it's we're just not happy people
0: yeah I mean after World War II like Manchester was just completely demolished yeah and there's that mentality of like I think Peter Hook was saying for a while he was living with his grandparents and there was actually a room where they had gas masks and you know war survival gear hidden. Yeah. You know, and he's like, my grandmother constantly talked about like surviving the war. And it's just heartbreaking because this music comes from that trickle down mentality of we're doomed, we're consistently doomed. And unfortunately, I think that this particular story like rings true with what's going on right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, they were, everybody was in a depression, like, there were no jobs to be had. Everybody was living with their parents like they couldn't go and get a job and go out on their own. It was misery. And the only way out of that was a band at that time,
0: you know, and you grow up in a town that built the war that built the industrial revolution of your your country and it gets destroyed. Yeah. And everything that ensues is just depressing and heartbreaking.
1: And that was the music they were putting out. And to this day, every depressed teenager is locked in their room listening to Joy Division. I know I went through that phase, you know. And if you look at the, like, the back-to-back here, you've got these two bands that are putting out music at pretty much the same time. You've got NXS highlighting, like, the, no, we're coming into a new era. We're having fun. We're going to dance through our troubles. And then you've got dark wave post-punk England, especially Manchester, where you've got bands like Joy Division and The Smiths and, you know, The Cure was just down the street. They were all coming out going, no, we're fucked. We hate this. This is the, like, darkness that we live with every day. And both are valid.
0: Yeah. You know, and both speak to each end of your psyche. Like, that's the thing is, like, even growing up as a teenager in the late 90s, like, I had the punk era where I would listen to, like, the old punk. And I mean, Misfits were hands down one of my favorites because I loved horror movies. I loved Mm -hmm. fast music. That spoke to me. But at the same time, a lot of my friends were listening to The Smiths and you know i'd make fun of them but secretly behind my behind their back i was at home listening to like you know morrissey going oh shit <laughs> yeah. you know i like i was punching holes and beating holes in my walls with like a hammer and my fist and you know like trying to get that angst and that depression and that self-hatred out and this music was a catalyst me really understanding my own emotions right and it was I think the first time other than the doors Mm -hmm. where you could really hear and embrace your inner demons Mm -hmm. and that was something that joy division brought us that maybe at the time we didn't necessarily appreciate or understand but now it's like a pinnacle Mm -hmm. of what music is today and I mean...
1: You can listen to any band that has some sort of dark, like, phase to it, you know? Not even just your goth bands, but, you know, any, like, quote-unquote alternative or indie band that has sort of darker lyrics and more, like, introspective lyrics, and trace them right back to Joy Division.
0: Yeah, I mean... And... Even with like Blink-182, which for a majority of the time was a super bouncy pop punk band, Mm -hmm. they still had had Adam's song.
1: Yeah. You know, and you can't go anywhere and throw a rock at anybody these days without seeing a Joy Division t-shirt or a riff on the Joy Division t-shirt. They are iconic. And for a band that was only around for a very short period of time. I
0: mean, they were predominantly active in 1970 and 1980. Like, most of their stuff was compiled into two years. And they were very young. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you know, Peter Hook and the rest of them, when, you know, Ian passed shortly after
1: like literally picked up and became like new order right away and i love new order too i mean obviously i mean
0: they're fucking iconic
1: exactly they are such a big part of where 80s music went and what 80s music became but they knew they could not hold on to that sound and keep going because ian was the driving force behind that So they took a 180 and went for that slick synthesizer dance music sound that in excess ended up going down as well. And because they couldn't keep up with that true introspective feeling without Ian.
0: Yeah. I mean, they birthed synth pop. Yeah. I mean... Which is, hands down, one of my favorite genres.
1: Absolutely. You know? Like, any night in this house, one of us has been talking about 80s music. Yeah. And it's not your radio-friendly 80s music. It's the shit that came out of England. (laughs) Necessarily
0: Manchester. And... Yeah, I mean, half the time, like, if I'm doing stuff in the house, I'll tell Alexa to play the Smiths.
1: Yeah. You
0: know?
1: Or some... Cure Radio, or, you know, and every one of those stations, no matter what mix they're playing, has Joy Division in it. It's inevitable.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's just, I mean, I grew up listening to, like, Love Will Tear Us Apart and not realizing how quintessential it was, not only to goth music, but Mm -hmm. to punk rock and glam rock and synthwave and goth music and it kind of paved the way to everything that that even, we hold dear. Yeah, like even now one of the most current influential goth bands is A Story Night, which I'm super proud of because they're from my home state. Mhm. And they're amazing, you know. It's you know they were supposed to be on tour right now with clan of osmosis and bellwether syndicate Xmos but yeah yeah Xmos is sorry <laughs> so sorry
1: it's all right it's hard it's it's one of those things that you can read a hundred times but actually pronouncing it out loud is not
0: I'm like Noxima Oxyclean. <laughs> exactly but they're an amazing band they
1: are and, and that's what matters
0: yeah they're a pinnacle and then you've got bellwether syndicate which is comprised of two like godparents of the gothic music scene Mm -hmm. you know it's like but all of that came from bands like joy division yeah you know
1: and we need to pay our respects to them for who they were and what they've given us over the years and you know we know where we We wouldn't be where we are without Ian Curtis having his say. No. And as tragic as it is that he went as early as he did, we thank him for what he gave us before he left.
0: No, I mean, doing all the research for this episode, like, I did not know that his medical condition was such a huge weight on not only his life, but the band, Mm -hmm. but they loved him and knew that he was pinnacle enough that they hung on as much as they could to where he was like, I love you guys. And it's not fair to you. Yeah. And I'm out.
1: Yeah.
0: And I mean, that's just horrible, but, um,
1: and one more time, I just want to say, we always know that we bring these sad stories and, We make light of them as we go because it's easier to do that. And that's just our sense of humor. But suicide is a real issue. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to give you the number for the suicide prevention hotline. If you need help, get help. Because the world is not a better place without having had Ian in it. Even if he couldn't tour with the band, he could have given his poetry to the world. He could have raised his baby girl. He could have found a way with help. And... If you need it, you can call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. 273 8255 So, in these dark times, literally dark, dark times, yeah. we're all alone in our houses. We can't go out. We can't seek people who can look at us face-to-face and give us a hug and tell us it's going to be okay. But there is help out there. And if you need it, please get it.
0: Yeah, like, I want more than anything in the world... What's this madness that we're embraced in is to go back to Boys Town and hang out and spend time with our friends and tell them how much we love them and get that embrace that we haven't had.
1: Mm-hmm. And then in the meantime, find a way to talk to your people. Yeah. Be on the phone, be it by email, mm-hmm. be by conference, teleconference. Get on Skype. Get on FaceTime. Just tell the people that you love that you love them. Because when this is all over, they're all going to be there for you. And this is all showing us that we're in this together. And stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay the fuck at home.
0: Please.
1: And we'll get through this sooner rather than later. And in the meantime, we're here for you. You can get us on diet.com black at gmail.com you can check out our instagram you can check out our facebook groups reach out to us
0: yeah i mean if you want to get together and talk to us about our episodes or honestly just hang out and talk to us let us know
1: we'll set up a
0: instagram live like we've
1: done before
0: or a skype chat like we get it Mm -hmm. you know i mean both of us have been through Some pretty dark times in our life. Exactly. You know, but... But,
1: We found each other. We found a really good group of friends. We have family who loves us. We have a roof over our head. We've We've got got fluffy little assholes. Beautiful
0: kitties.
1: I mean, depending on which way you look at it, beautiful kitties are fluffy little assholes.
0: I know, but look at him. He's beautiful. In the end,
1: (laughs) (laughs) we are here together Mm -hmm. and this is just a temporary blip in history and we've got the rest of our lives to live and we're gonna do it and we're gonna do it beautiful and we're gonna (sighs) diet black
0: Ah, yes diet black we love you good night